You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. This is Season 4, Episode 11, the penultimate episode of Season 4. Yeah, so that means that the next episode is our season finale. That's right. And we have an important announcement about season five. Yes. So in season five, which will begin in January, we will have a new baby and Zach will have a very aggressive work travel schedule. Unfortunately, those two are very poorly timed together. (laughs) So basically, I'll be on the road a lot. At the same time, we're doing all that we can to stay above water with (laughs) with a new addition to the family. So what we're going to be doing is scaling back our interviews and doing a vernacular book club. So we'll be releasing regular episodes, but they'll be us talking about a book that we're reading. And we will publicize this ahead of time and announce that ahead of time so that if you want, you can read along and join the conversation. Yeah. So next episode, we'll let you know what the first book of the book club will be. And when we when we we'll, we'll have a schedule for you and when we hope to have that episode released so that you can read it before we release the episode. And then you can kind of join in on the conversation. We have a lot of ideas of books we want to read. But if you have ideas, yeah. please send them our way as well. You know how to get in touch with us, Twitter, at VernacularPod. You can also reach out uh, on our website, VernacularPodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love your suggestions. Just think of books that are manageable to read in about a month's time for busy people, and that would be interesting to a wide variety of people. Right. So, and maybe relates to our vernacular theme of human flourishing, but ideally, it, not necessarily. Ideally relating to our theme. Yeah, in some way. And that's a pretty broad topic. We can relate a lot of things to that yeah. theme. So we're really excited about it, and we hope that you guys will be too, and we hope that we'll have a lot of participants. Yes. Also very important, we are recording this the day after the Cubs won the World Series. Yes. So exciting. Or I guess since they won after midnight, it's technically the day they won the the, the World Series. (laughs) But what a crazy game. I got to watch the whole thing. Sally bailed early. I did bail early. I'm not even a Cubs fan, but longtime listeners of the podcast know that I am a huge baseball fan, and it was an amazing game. Probably the best baseball game I've ever seen. Yeah, I wish I could have stayed up as a former Chicagoan. I definitely have a soft spot in my heart, but it was just already 10 o'clock, so I needed to go to bed. <laughs> so if you haven't read about that game, you should. If you haven't read about the Cubs' historic season, you should. They're doing a lot of cool stuff. Also, something I'm thinking about for next year is doing a sports podcast separate from Vernacular. So that would be so awesome. If you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, let me know. <laughs> I'll be doing this likely with Ishan, who's been on the show before, and uh, one or two others with whom I am in contract negotiations with. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but one or two others who are interested. This would be in the second half of the year after that crazy period that we just Correct. talked yep. about. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So we would reboot Vernacular for a season six, ideally. Ideally. And run that alongside season a separate one initiative of a, of a sports, sports podcast. podcast. Yeah. So yeah. Pretty ambitious. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. I mean, it is ambitious, but maybe it will happen. Right. <laughs> we'll <see. laughs> right. Um, the other thing that's on our mind is Thanksgiving, which is right around the corner. And for us. Especially for us, <laughs> since we are celebrating an early Thanksgiving. Yeah. Literally um, tomorrow, we are driving to see my side of the family in Chicago, and everyone is is descending upon my parents' house to have early Thanksgiving since, really, they're rearranging their schedules for us. And we won't rant about Thanksgiving foods. We've done that previously, so you can yeah, go back listen and to listen last to last year's Thanksgiving last year's. episode about Thanksgiving food. I do need to issue a retraction, though. 
last season I tore apart Brussels sprouts, and uh, I didn't really have a good reason for doing so. <laughs> I now love Brussels sprouts. And... Yeah, even when Zach was in Alabama without me, he bought Brussels sprouts and ate them without me. I did. They're so very good. So that was pretty impressive. A little bit of butter, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of salt and pepper. You can make any Amazing. vegetable taste good, I think. No, that's not true. But Brussels sprouts, <laughs> you definitely can. So hopefully there will be Brussels sprouts in the menu this year. Yeah, we don't know the full menu. We do know that we are once again in charge of the pumpkin pies. And we are doing our maple bourbon pumpkin pie once again with an almond oat flour crust. Yes. And it'll be amazing. So amazing. And then we're just doing a standard like regular pumpkin pie too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ready yeah. to press on? I think so. Yeah. So we're talking about a very important topic today. And as you can probably guess from the description of this episode, it does deal with some more mature themes. So be advised if you have younger ears Little listening ears, to yeah. um, monitor that. But we have a great conversation with Mary Rose about pornography and how dangerous it really is. We hope you stick around for that. All right, we're back at Vernacular Podcast, and we are here today with our guest, Mary Rose Samariba, and she is the culture editor at Verily Magazine. We've already had two guests who are affiliated with Verily on the show before, and we are very excited to have Mary Rose. Another um, accomplishment of hers that I wanted to mention is that she had received the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship in 2012, and the focus of that for her was on the connections between pornography and sex trafficking, which gets us to our topic for today, which is in part pornography. So Mary Rose, welcome to the show. Thank you. So great to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. We want to talk to you about a lot of things that involve what Sally just spoke about, your experience uh, looking at the nexus of sexual violence and pornography. And this was brought to our attention by your recent writings on rape culture, uh, especially in the aftermath of the Brock Turner case, when everyone was talking about what a lenient sentence uh, Brock Turner received for the heinous crime that he committed. So um, I guess I'll start with this one. What is rape culture? So that's a good question. There's, um, uh, you know, at first I was going to start commenting um, on what I think of it, but I thought a good place to start is the way that it's frequently used as a word. And it, in the 70s, it was coined by some feminists, um, including, I think, one of them who's most who frequently spoke about it was uh, someone named Emily Butchwald. Um, author of a book called Transforming a Rape Culture, and she described it as a set of beliefs that encourage male sexual aggression and supports violence against women. And the reason I thought I'd start with how it's frequently used is because it's frequently used as something that's, uh, when people say, oh, this is a sign of rape culture, they're referring usually to something that's a sign of victim-blaming woman. Um, so they'll say, oh, well, he got away with a light sentence. There's rape culture at work right there, which is people were looking more critically at the woman than at the man in the situation of a sexual assault. So, um, you know, they'll, they'll look at what, what got her to that situation rather than looking at what he did more critically. Right. And so, um, and so I think that's how it's frequently used as a phrase. And then when you ask me that, it makes me think also of hookup culture, for instance, people that's not, that's used as simply the act, you know, the cultural, uh, happening of a lot of people having, um, no strings attached sex, you know, sexual encounters, that kind of, so if I think that, um, you know, people could also use it in such a way as to refer to is it's just a very large, um, aspect of our cultural environment today where rape is happening and is, um, but I think that most of all, it, it's about, a the societal, um, 
just different ways in pop culture where rape or sexual aggression is treated as a as as something that's uh, glorified or sexualized or shown as risky and fun and not as a grave you know problem. One of my favorite recent articles of yours at Verily was uh, from June of this year, and this was uh, right when right in the aftermath, I guess, of the Brock Turner outcry. And the title of this piece is, Yes, the Stanford rapist Brock Turner is to blame for his crime, so is this. Uh, subtitle, We'd be naive to think that porn has nothing to do with rape. And in this article, you uh, make what I think is a really compelling argument. And what struck me uh, especially was the analogy that you drew when you said that if we found someone who was a reasonable person, seemed like a reasonable person during the day, but when they got drunk started, you know, uh, 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 talking about the credo of the Ku Klux Klan, we would assume that they have been in some way indoctrinated by the Klan. And similarly, when someone like Brock Turner seems like a reasonable person during the day, but when at, at night he gets drunk and treats a woman the way he did when he raped uh, his victim, we don't necessarily think that there's something else at work there. And we really should. And your argument is that that's porn. Why do you think that? I think that because uh, there's been a lot of research that connects um, porn with uh, sexual aggression. Well, first of all, a lot of um, pornography depicts aggression against women. Um, one study coming out of um, from researchers A.J. Bridges and Woznitzer, um, available um, at the U.S., National Library of Medicine and National Institutes of Health um, showed that aggression and sexual behavior in pornography videos is, is so frequent so as to be 88.2% um, of the of scenes contained physical aggression. Wow. Um, including such things as gagging and slapping. 48.7% of scenes contained verbal aggression and um, just basically humiliation of women. And so when we realize that a lot of the imagery that's depicted in porn and is uh, is showing things that are very degrading of women and, and up to the point of just violence against women, then it wouldn't surprise me, um, knowing this, that people can think that violent acts against women are sexy. Things that Brock Turner did were violent behaviors, were not by any, uh, you know, by any reasonable uh description things that you would say were um comfortable comfortable you know experiences for a woman however because he's probably i'm assuming i'm not again this is an assumption um but but hearing that case made me think you know i i bet you porn was something that he consumed because um because it depicts those things and it normalizes them and what neuroscience has shown is that when you repeatedly watch these these views um these images it can actually make you less sensitive to sexual assault it can desensitize your brain to sexual assault when an actual sexual assault happens or if someone describes one to you according to a different study people were described sexual assault or a rape scenario and after watching porn or if they had said they watched porn those who said they watched porn would be less likely to call something that was a sexual assault a sexual assault. And so we know that it desensitizes people. But also neuroscientists like um, Norman Doidge, who wrote The Brain That Changes Itself, has shown, has um, documented that watching repeated imagery of sexual imagery as depicted in porn 
and then, you know, climaxing to them, it, it does something to your brain. It gives you a dopamine rush and it creates pathways in your brain that um, give you basically uh, rewards in your brain for that activity. And so it is essentially watching a lot of porn frequently um, is essentially conditioning people who watch it to see uh, sexual situations that can be violent as uh, pleasing. And so, you know, there's a lot of problems there. <laughs> but um, but one of them is that, you know, you can get yourself in situations where you think you see consent because women in porn always are consenting or always appear to like it. Even if they've been physically beaten in the scene, they will ultimately, it'll be spun like they like it. Or either way, the man climaxes and he has that uh, that reward in his brain center. So it's just not, it's just not good. It's just not good uh imagery to ingest if if we want to have a if we want to you know decrease violence against women and who is the the author of the book that you mentioned about how your brain rewires itself that's norman doidge he it was a i believe it was a best-selling book the brain that changes itself okay there's there's another book that i'm familiar with i haven't read it but i've seen a ted talk by the author it's called your brain on porn internet pornography and the emerging science of addiction and it it makes the Mm -hmm. same point and draws on the same research talking very specifically about how pornography affects the brain. And I think it's really naive to think that a a culture that grows up saturated in these images will not be affected by them, especially given the ubiquity of them. Uh, Another article that I just just noticed you uh, wrote on Verily Today actually was about Pamela Anderson's recent op-ed that she wrote with a, a rabbi in the Wall Street Journal and mm-hmm. uh, Anderson, of course, is is coming from a career as a Playboy model and actress. Someone you point out who is intimately familiar with this industry, and she's warning about the effects and citing data from the American Psychological Association, saying that uh, porn consumption rates are between fifty and ninety nine percent for men, and between thirty and eighty six percent for women. That's that's a lot of pornography. Yeah, there's a lot of people watching it. That's why I felt, even though I don't have any evidence that Brock Turner, for instance, watched porn, I just felt that given the context, it, it, it's unlikely that he didn't, given how many people do watch. 99%, between 50 and 99%, you already have a majority. Right, exactly. I mean, um, it's, so just statistically, the chances are better than 50-50. And I'm willing to bet that his age demographic is a mm-hmm. lot higher than the bottom yeah, tier of that. especially in college. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a problem that a lot of people are watching this, and more and more women are watching it. Um, but it's, um, but it's not the same. It's not the same content that they are clicking through to. So it's um, it's just problematic, um, and it's definitely something that um, you know. I think in the article in the Wall Street Journal, Pamela Anderson and Rabbi Botich said, "We don't expect this to be gone tomorrow. We can't really close the Pandora's box, but we can." talk seriously about the repercussions of consuming all this. Yeah, that um, brings me to another question. And you've written articles on this aspect as well of rape culture and pornography. Um, But kind of the positive side, what can we do to help this generation develop those healthier attitudes and lifestyles that that reject porn um, and that don't consume that kind of sexualized imagery? For instance, would in in addition to, I'm sure, many other things, would anti-porn laws be effective yeah, I think with this problem of porn, it's it's um, developing healthier li- attitudes and lifestyles about sexuality. I think is almost, in my in my view, um, I don't have as much experience on speaking to policy solutions, um, but uh, it's almost more in my view about in you know trying to uh, 
um, avoid the dangers of, of being exposed to porn at a young age, uh, more so than I don't know exactly what a healthy sex education would look like. I hear a lot of prescriptions people offer that that just don't seem quite right to me, um, you know, because there's some risks uh, involved. But, you know, some some people recommend, well, let's watch real people have sex, such as Cindy Gallup, who created a website called Make Love Not Porn. She says, this isn't pornified. It's real sex. Now people can see what real sex looks like. I don't agree with those kinds of solutions. Yeah, it seems a bit wrongheaded. But uh, yeah, so I understand she's she agrees that there's something wrong with porn. It's really fantasy. It's not real. Um, but that's just not the direction. I think that I think it's also you know not not a it's not. I think the real sex is about a relation between two people, not something that you, you know is best conveyed across visually. screen. Yeah, right. yeah. And so so you know how 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 do um have healthier attitudes and lifestyles about sexuality? I would just I would say that it's. To first of all, just to really inhibit the consumption of it, especially at young ages, it's not as much. Do I know what people should consume that that would teach them it? For all of history, I think that being in a home with a relatively stable mother and father um, in a healthy relationship there um, definitely is a good start. A, a stable home and and today, um, while that can't be taken for granted, I think that definitely role models or some kind of supervision to restrict um, Internet use and screen time, not to curb unrestricted screen time, definitely will help children not encounter this dangerous, this, um, you know, dangerous um, kind of pornography online that could really affect their views on sexuality for the rest of their lives if they're exposed at a very young age. And I think the latest numbers are that they're frequently, uh, the average is about 12 years old and it can be even younger. Um, I, I heard recently of, uh, that eight years old is an unheard of. Oh, and this is just by stumbling upon this content. It's not right. so much that they're even looking for it, but if that's someone's first exposure to sex, uh, that could be really formative and in all the wrong ways, in the wrong ways. And then it could be hard to, you know, at such a vulnerable, impressionable age, it can be hard to rewrite that, um, especially if they make it a habitual uh, thing that they consume. Right. But but it is possible. It is possible to, as as, as Norman Doidge says, <laughs> the neuroscientist, he talks about what porn does to your brain. He also talks about how you can how you can uh, rewire back in the healthy direction. Right. But it definitely sets people up for a challenge when sure. it comes to to healthy sexuality. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, though, that it has to start at the home and it has to start in those formative years. Um, I'm also optimistic, though, about anti-obscenity laws potentially gaining traction as the statistics about pornography become more widespread and the science is there to back them up. Mm -hmm. um, because it seems like since the 70s, the anti-pornography movement has basically been dead on arrival whenever they've tried to get bills passed because of free speech laws. But the difference here is um, I see these advocates taking a public health approach that this is a public health crisis. And in fact, in April of this year, the state of Utah signed a declaration. Mm -hmm. The governor signed it saying that pornography is a public health crisis because we have these statistics. Now, of course, Utah is an exception um, in many ways. They're a very conservative state. Um, so, you know, maybe the first uh, the first in the line of states to do something like this. But. Um, as the science comes out, I'm hopeful mm -hmm. that uh, that we can sort of crack down on the the uh, pornography itself. Yeah, I hope that would work. I have also thought. I mean, I think that currently we have some laws that are against hardcore pornography and anyone who disseminates it, but I don't see them being 
enforced. I was speaking with Don Hopkins of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation um, and way back, and she was talking about there are these laws, but they aren't enforced. And it is like the Pandora's box where people don't know how how to stop. Um, it's it's like fighting sex trafficking in a way. It's like a it's a black market. A lot of this content is is produced and not doesn't say what it has on its label doesn't say who's in it doesn't say how old they are and so you don't you know it's really hard to to pinpoint it doesn't say what part of the world it came from it's really hard to pinpoint where where these things are coming from before they're already live online but i but i i i have thought also about um parental you know i every time i go to a cell phone store i'm just sitting there waiting for my product or something you know my upgrade and i'm thinking why isn't there why isn't there greater? Uh, why aren't there phones just for teens that really block out this content? Why, why aren't there these things? I mean, we know that there are apps that try to fight these things or try to monitor usage, but but there's you know I think that there's still more of a market for um, for things to really protect children from exposure. I think parents something in parents could would would uh, buy into it. I think there's something about uh, about that obligation you have to your kids that even if you know no matter where someone stands on pornography i think everyone agrees that children shouldn't be exposed to it yeah absolutely i do i do hope that you know whatever whatever utah does and i just i do hope that some good comes out of these policies i do hope that there's some because i do think this is a good trend and having pamela anderson speak on it and others i think it is it is getting these facts out there that how dangerous it is and i i hope it does help bring about some positive change. We hear a lot about female empowerment and what it means to be an empowered woman. And you've written articles uh, talking about this. You've stated that sexual, sexually aggressive women and women who are initiating hookups are not examples of empowered women. So if that's not female empowerment, what, what would you say it is really? Yeah, that's such a big question. It's great. Uh, I think that female empowerment, I guess the best way I'd describe it is is having your basically a sense of agency and freedom and the less you are influenced by either coercion or simple simply um uh, a huge influence by trying to people please others um i think you know try to do something because you think it's an expectation that you must do it i think these kinds of influences um are are what inhibit female empowerment in in this arena if we're talking about uh, sexuality and hookups. I think that, um, I mean, we definitely would agree that the rape culture or the the sense of coercion being sexy that inhibits female empowerment because uh, if if there's a coercive act, a woman is not acting as a free agent; she is being acted acted upon, and that that's the the complete opposite of of an empowering situation. But as those things are being depicted in social you know, or in uh, pop culture, TV, movies, music. Um, as as empower or as fun and empowering glorified they they can confuse people into thinking that those are things they want to imitate and then they well they're influence they're influencing people and so that's why i um i'm not so sure that the increase of women uh initiating hookups is a sign of female empowerment as much as females trying to beat men to the punch in terms of what they think men expect or want and, you know, you, we did mention earlier the, the APA stats that show 50 to 99 percent of men watch porn. Women, are, this isn't this is this is something that women have caught up on. 
and I think that in many ways, um, women are trying to, you know, sometimes empowerment, true empowerment in sense of her free action, acting completely freely can be, you know, and, and to the point of her own free, her own desires influencing herself the most of all things and influencing others too, as a good role model, that, that, that true empowerment, um, could be inhibited by trying to please others, trying to meet expectations, trying to, it could be confused with, with a sense, a rush of, of feeling powerful, um, which, you know, any woman can do by undressing in front of a man. She can immediately feel some sense of power, but that is not, I don't think, real empowerment. I think that's, that's a, that's not, that's a short-lived rush of a, of a sense of excitement or something else, but it's not empowerment. Well, yeah, and I think that we would hope that women would be able to feel empowered, not not only in situations where they have power over someone else, and mm-hmm. and also not only in in a context of sex that mm-hmm. that we could take that out of, not confine it to that that realm, but but speak of women being empowered, you know, for young girls to be empowered, and for that not mm-hmm. to have anything to do with sex or to have had anything to do with having power over another person. Right. I completely agree with that. And I don't think that um, engaging in sex is something that is healthy for for young girls to even be thinking about. I right, think that they, right. sh- they should be thinking about, you know, really what what is um, you know, growing and what in their what are what are what are the um, parts of themselves that they want to pursue, that they want to cherish, that they want to that lead them to want to do the different things that they could do in life, you know, but not but not sexual relationships because there's just, it's just a minefield. It really is for emotional and physical risk. We didn't mention the physical risks of, of, um, but yeah, definitely a lot of physical risks in, in, in sexual activity. Well, good follow up to this question that Sally asked you about female empowerment, I think is, uh, to ask you more specifically about your opinion on, on Amy Schumer's work. She's a comedian who's, uh, best known mm-hmm. probably for her comedy series Inside Amy Schumer, but she's been praised for sort of her um, subversive feminism. Yeah, and bucking she, trends. Yeah, and... and she just wrote a um, sort of hilariously named uh, book, a sort of memoir, <laughs> I think, The Girl with the Lower Back, back Tattoo. tattoo. <laughs> um, and I know you've reviewed this on your site. We tried to get a copy, actually, before we spoke with you uh, through our library, and it's on back order for them. So no. we haven't gotten a chance to read it. But uh, what do you think of what do you think of her work generally and maybe her book more specifically? Yeah, I whenever I've watched Amy Schumer and it also took place when I was reading the book, there's I there's something very intriguing and there's also something a little uncomfortable for me. For the part that's intriguing is um well, she gets a lot of female humor and she she understands what a lot of women experience in terms of subtle sexist things in day-to-day life and she she jokes about them and so you could feel understood um but then other times you know, I get the sense that she, you know, so in, in that respect, I get the sense that she's, um, on, she's trying to be, and she has said this, that she's, she likes to be a feminist voice. She's trying to bring attention to things that, you know, that she thinks need attention, um, in the name of equality of men and women. But then also some of the imagery I, or, or references are so hypersexual that I, I found that it's hard for me to um, it seems like in some extent, to some extent, it's also participating in the same in things that don't help, um, when it comes to male and female equality. And we know that objectifying imagery, um, doesn't help. Uh, it makes women 
out to be objects and not full persons and then um you know people not to be taken as seriously it hurts us in lots of um documentable and and undocumentable ways and so so um so that's where i have have my my qualms now there it is true that a lot of people in comedy sometimes they play a role uh to in order to critique something and and i think that she's probably doing that but i also think that she's just a, uh, she's in her thirties, and as am I. I think she's just making her figuring out her own voice and just figuring out how she wants to portray herself. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that uh, that's what I think about her work. And just to and just to follow up on Zach's question, you're um, you wrote that article just kind of reviewing her her book specifically. What did you did you think she had any compelling insights that came from that, or was it more oh, just yeah. a reflection on her own life? I actually found the book to be so much better than her comedy in many ways. Um, I, her comedy makes me laugh out loud, and some of them are just perfect. Um, there's one that we highlighted on VerilyMag.com where she, um, she it was a it was a spoof about makeup free, encouraging women to go makeup free. It was spoofing a boy band that was saying, "Hey, sweetheart, you don't need makeup." And then she's like, "Oh, oh, okay, really?" He took it off, and then they instantly changed their tune. Whoa, 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 whoa. We, we expected you to look like every other woman in pictures. Okay. Wait, put on a little more makeup again. Oh man. And it was so funny. So sometimes she really does get certain things that women encounter and it was just perfect. Like pristine, no, no problems at all for me at all. No objectifying content that really raised any red flags. But then other times, um, you know, the, some of her, some of her comedy makes me less comfortable in the objectifying category, but her book I found, um, showed a lot more, you know, and I have questioned in the past at Verily in different articles, like, is, is this comedy, is she, you know, she also, she'll criticize, um, she'll make, show that she understands why women are compromised in some skits, you know, well, I can see how a woman in Hollywood is compromised, you know, she's making a lot of money, there's a lot of voices in the room, and they say, well, can you pose this way, or can you depict this, this, you know, XYZ character, uh, but then, you know, so she seems to criticize it in her comedy, but then on the cover of GQ there she I think it was GQ there she is posing as um as a sexualized you know Princess Leia from Star Wars right right and so you know I used to think what is she sending Morse code from the battle line you know she she basically in her comedy critiquing things that she herself has experienced in real time (laughs) because are people like pressuring her to do that or is this coming from her yeah does it cry for help or something yeah (laughs) and so I used to just wonder about that but then in the book I got a sense that there wasn't as much I definitely got a sense reading the book that there wasn't as much um you know any kind of as much uh, fingerprints of of the kind of media that you would expect in TV production or whatnot, or, or magazine editors or what have you. Um, I, I got a sense that it was more an unfiltered uh, version and of what of her stories. And yes, she included crude things because she she always um, that's her vernacular, so to speak. But but she I thought had a lot more raw personal story come through, and some of those were actually very very powerful. I found bringing attention to issues that are among the biggest issues women face today. One chapter about sexual assault, her first um, sexual encounter was one of sexual assault. It was so, so heartbreaking to read that. And then there was another chapter on um, an abusive relationship where she was with someone who had just just gone off the handle and she had it run for her life. And it was just, I think that those issues um, that she just felt 
she she should she's got a lot of attention she could bring attention share her story i thought that was those were very powerful and and i think that when you know when that'll help women feel you know not alone if they've experienced those things and um and get some encouragement and and you could tell that she's trying to um make a difference by sharing her story there yeah we've talked about this before on our podcast just how how insightful comedians can be in delivering their thoughts through their medium. Uh, I mean, one of my favorites is Aziz Ansari, and like Amy Schumer, he can be very crude, and I don't appreciate that side of his humor, but he can also be very cutting in sort of dissecting the various problems of society. Um, mm-hmm. In his in his stand-up work, his writing, and in his uh, Netflix show, Master of None. Mm-hmm. So how about, um, besides Amy Schumer, any other celebrities who are doing sort of good work in this space yeah it's hard to think of um i was trying to think of explicitly on or you know on the topic of rape culture or not objectifying women it's hard to think of a celebrity who really embraces that wholeheartedly and says so as well it's one woman is um who comes to mind who explicitly references not objectifying women is i'm not sure how much a celebrity she is but her name is madonna badger and she is a um, the head of a ad agency called Badger and Winters. I think that Kate Moss was discovered through them. Um, but she's a woman who started a group called, or a, a campaign called Women Not Objects in the last year. So it's been hashtag Women Not Objects. They've created a campaign, a campaign that explicitly references not objectifying women, and it and it points the finger a lot at advertising, a lot of imagery and advertising. Just let's try to sell you a hamburger. We'll put a woman scantily clad next to it. Let's try to sell you and, you know, whatever it is. And it's not helping when it comes to um, the rape culture, not helping in terms of generally objectifying um, an inequality of women as a result. Um, But when it comes to other celebrities, it's hard to think of ones who who, um, explicitly speak out on it as much. You definitely have... um, ones who don't play into the sexualized culture in their work, such as musicians like Adele or a couple years ago, maybe um, one or two years ago, one of the MTV Video Music Awards, um, after it aired, Pink, the singer Pink, commented publicly, like on social media, I don't think she named names, but she simply said, oh my goodness, the it, the everybody's sexualized right now. Her exact words, I don't have um, this from my tongue, but she basically was saying, come on, where's the actual inspiration? She said when she first uh, started and when she was younger, she found music to be really inspiring and saved her life, turned her life around. But she just didn't find that in in what was on stage, which was a bunch of hypersexual performances. There was one, though, that she said that that was actually inspiring, and it was a singer called Tori Kelly who just delivered just good music, not not as much playing into that. Um, So Adele is definitely another one uh, who doesn't play into it. Um, you know, there's, there's others in, um, in terms of people combating the rape culture in particular with their work. I think one person that comes to mind is Lady Gaga, who at the Oscars, um, the last Oscar, she sang a song from a documentary called the hunting ground is the song was till it happens to you. And I thought that, and she, uh, definitely that song brought some attention to the issue of rape. Um, yeah, that was very powerful. It was a really powerful performance ended with a lot of uh, rape um, survivors in the background holding hands. It was just very powerful, or you know, or putting their hands um, up, and it was it was really great. And I think that also she's had a something of a renaissance in the last couple of years. She 
isn't as much. It's, it's also with, with when we're looking at entertainers and celebrities and asking who isn't playing into objectifying culture. It's just sometimes it's also just uh, shock value culture or what have you. I think that definitely Lady Gaga uh, in her early career had a lot of sexual and, and just strange, bizarre imagery attached to her her music and um, her branding in general and uh, the image she was trying to portray. But it's in the last three or so years that has really been shed. Um, I think part of it started to happen when Tony Bennett uh, called on her to, to collaborate with a uh, joint CD. And, um, and he's almost this, <laughs> I've come to see him as like an evangelist for classic good classic music because he did the same thing with Amy Winehouse. And, um, but after, but you know, there's something about when people appreciate you for what you really bring your talent. And that's what Lady Gaga does have in a voice and musical talent. Then, uh, then, you know, you realize you don't need to play into those other roles as much to be appreciated. And around that time is when I didn't see any more objectifying content as much coming out of her. Um, I'm not sure she'd stand up and say that, but I think that it was, something you didn't see as much you saw her singing the sound of music at the oscars sounding like as close as you can imaginably you know think to uh, the original and and just different things like that she um she you know she's she just has done a lot more uh content that isn't as as uh as problematic but i again it's hard to find someone who says that they are explicitly going to not contribute anymore to over-sexualized media. But I definitely do think Pamela Anderson is one we can add to this list this uh, as of this last week because she is she has put her name on the dotted line there on the Wall Street Journal saying, don't watch porn. It's not good. Yeah, that's so that fantastic. Was, that was good. Well, thanks so much, Mary Rose. Thank you for talking with us and sharing all of your research and opinions on this topic. It's such an important one, and we really appreciate you highlighting it both on our show and in all of your articles on Verily. Thank you. I'm so I'm so pleased to participate and 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 I appreciate your time and and all that you do. Thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of Vernacular Podcast and a special thanks to Mary Rose for helping us uh, digest what's a really really important topic and one that I think doesn't get enough press, but it, Really, I think people are just now waking up to the dangers of pornography and the way it affects how we think and how we treat one another. And this conversation that you've heard is uh, really, I think, just the beginning. So hopefully we'll tackle this more in future episodes as well. Yeah, we would love to. And if you want to read more on this, uh, you can look at the linked blog post and you'll see a lot of articles that Mary Rose has written on Verily, as well as Pamela Anderson's original piece that she um, wrote for The Wall Street Journal. If you have thoughts, we'd love to hear them, so please reach out to us. As always, we love hearing from our listeners. Also, as we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, episode, we are doing a book club next year, and we have some good books in mind, but we want more ideas. So if you have ideas of books that we could read and you want to read with us— Yeah, get in touch with us. Please do. Uh, You can find us on Twitter. Our uh, podcast account is at VernacularPod. You can also find our individual accounts. I'm at Zach Crippen, and Sally is at SF Crippen. You can also uh, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. 
You can also email us directly at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And like I said, check out our blog. You can reach it from our website, vernacularpodcast.com. And our blog is a medium-hosted blog that includes articles that are related to each of the episodes and include links that are associated with each of the episodes. And Sally spends a lot of time on each of these blog posts, and there's one that goes along with each episode. So basically, anytime you hear one of us or one of our guests reference an article, I try to a include video, it. <laughs> a book, Sally painstakingly includes all of this stuff. Sometimes I miss it, but Not I really. try to you include it. Let's be real. <laughs> so yeah, if you're interested in anything that we talked about today or any previous episode, just go to the blog and find the accompanying blog post, and it should all be there. And with regard to the book club, get in touch with us before Thanksgiving because our last episode, our season finale, is going to come out probably Black Friday weekend. And we want to announce our first book when we air that episode. Yeah, so if you have ideas for the first book especially, let us know before Thanksgiving. All right, I think that covers it. I think so. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Oh, I-